2009, October 19th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 18, The Earliest Living Things on Earth. So we've been talking about life on Earth. That's what this unit, this whole three-week unit is going to be about. And the goal for the section here is to try to understand what is the nature of life on Earth to give us some idea of what we should be looking for for life on other worlds. It's not always obvious that what we're going to learn will be directly applicable to astrobiology, but at least it gives us a starting point. So today we're going to begin the third and final portion of this unit, which we'll call sort of origins and endings. We're going to look at the origins of life, the earliest forms of life on Earth, the history of life on Earth, and then finally, at the end, say something about extinctions and the effect of, of asteroidal impacts may have played on extinction of species throughout Earth's history. That may again provide us with some information as to what we might expect as we go out and look at other worlds. But today what I want to talk about is searches in the geological record for the traces of the very first living things on Earth. So we want to ask, how did life start on Earth? What are the primitive, most primitive forms of life that still remain somewhere in the fossil record? And there are three basic approaches that we can take to answer, answering this question. The first of these is we're going to introduce a group of creatures known as fossil stromatolites, which are remnants of layered mats of cyanobacteria that stand today as among the world's oldest, oldest fossils, oldest recognizable fossils that were associated with life. A second, somewhat more controversial area is this idea of microfossils. These are actually fossilized individual cells. These are obviously going to be at least an order of magnitude or more, more difficult to find, but we have in fact found them and identified them. And the question is, we've identified them at least reliably back about two, three, two and a half billion years, but how far back can we go and what are the challenges involved in finding these oldest prokaryotic cells? And finally, we're going to look at a third method which is even more indirect than the other two combined, and that is to look at traces of biological activity, even if the geologic processing has completely destroyed the fossils themselves. <clears throat> and one of the tricks that's used is to look at carbon isotope ratios that are going to be altered due to biological metabolism. And this may be seen as an indirect signal of life processes at work, especially in those cases where the fossil remnants are no longer available. So these are the three basic lines of evidence that we use in paleobiology to try to find out when did life first arise on this planet. So today's lecture is going to be looking at the evidence for the earliest life on the planet and the challenges associated with the same. Now the oldest living things that I expect to find on the Earth are expected to arise sometime during the Archean Eon. So just to remind you of the geological scale of time, begins with the formation of the Earth about 4.5, 4.6 billion years ago, and ends up in the present day. And we define geologic time into four basic eons. The Hadean Eon is the very first one. It runs from about 4.5 billion years up to about 3.8 billion years ago. It finds its traces in the oldest remaining identifiable rocks and minerals on the planet. This is the epoch eon that encompasses the events of the formation of the Earth, the formation of the Moon from a giant impact with, with something at very early in the, in the Earth's life, the formation of the oceans and the very first atmosphere of the Earth. But this entire period, as we saw last week when we talked about the history of the Earth with special emphasis on the Hadean period, is that the Earth was continually being bombarded by rocks during this period, some of them up to many hundreds of kilometers across, which nowadays would qualify as a very large asteroid. The solar system has long since been swept clean of those objects, primarily by the action of the gravity of Jupiter. 
So today we don't expect this. But going back to at least 3.8 billion years ago was the era of the last heavy bombardment in our part of the solar system. And we trace this, for example, by looking at the cratering history on the moon. The moon is a geologically dead place, so it bears the scars of the bombardments up to 3.8 billion years ago, and then we can see it tailing off very rapidly from there. So it's pretty clear that once you end the period of heavy bombardment, you end the time in which you can get impacts by asteroids so large that they essentially vaporize the oceans and cause a massive sterilization event. This is beyond mere extinction. It basically steam cleans the Earth and starts the whole story all over again. So if life did in fact rise in the Hadean period, we expect it to have been thoroughly erased. Maybe it's there, but we expect it to basically be gone. And so it's this particular period between 3.8 billion years ago and about 2.5 billion years ago called the Archaean Eon. It's a period of more than, th- more than a billion years in which we think this is basically the interregnum between a completely lifeless Earth and the Hadean to the point where the Earth is basically beginning to be thoroughly colonized by life in all of its areas during the following eon called the Proterozoic. It's during this period that we expect that we're going to find the first evidence of life if it still exists in the geologic record. We know by about two and a half billion years ago, during the beginning of the Proterozoic period, that not only do we see abundant fossil evidence, microfossils for the most part, but also others as we'll see a little bit today, showing the evidence of life fairly widespread on the planet. There are also signs of a tremendous buildup of oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere, which is the only process that we know of that can build up to the oxygen content of our current day Earth's atmosphere is biological processes, primarily photosynthesis. The conversion of carbon dioxide and water into oxygen and sugars in green plants. And that continues for a great deal of time during this period called the Proterozoic. We see the first fossils of eukaryotic cells, those with an actual cell nucleus containing the load of of genetic material. And this buildup of oxygen continues well into this period, approximately 545 million years ago, which marks the beginning of the Cambrian period at the start of the Phanerozoic Eon. This is the era in which we actually begin to see multicellular organisms a.k.a. animals and plants, actually begin to arise on the Earth. Whereas before here, we're dealing with either single, with single-celled creatures or maybe the most primitive form of multi-celled uh, creatures, but mostly colonies of same. So we haven't quite gotten to complex forms of life until only the last roughly 600 million years. Well, the question is, where did it start? And we expect that that start should occur sometimes, sometime in the Archaean. Now, there was some idea, perhaps it started, in fact, at the beginning of the Proterozoic, Proterozoic basically is formed from the words first life or earliest life. But in fact, what we found is over the last few decades that we are seeing evidence of life moving further and further into the Archaean Eon. And that's what today's lecture is going to be largely concerned with is how far back we've been able to push it with the available geologic evidence. But there's a problem at play here, and that's because the Earth is geologically active. Unlike the moon, which bears an exact record of everything that's happened on the moon, the Earth has basically been repaved and recycled many times through the action of plate tectonics. And this presents us with particular challenges for studying very, very old periods on the Earth. For example, most of the Earth's, visible, most of the Earth's crust is less than about 100 million years old. Now, of course, most of that crust is actually under under the oceans. The oceanic crusts are the thinnest and youngest crust on the planet. Most of the surface rocks, and those especially out 
on the continents as well, have been melted and solidified at least a few times over the course of, of geologic history through the processes of subduction, uplift, and volcanism. And if, in fact, we look around for the world's oldest rock, we're pretty much getting down to dates between 3.8 and 4.4 billion years ago. The oldest rock, as we saw when we talked about the age of the Earth, comes from the Jack Hills of Australia. It's a section of Western Australia, which is part of the oldest surviving continental shields. We find zircons present in that, in that, mater in that material, which are radioactive dated using the uranium lead method, reliably to about 4.4 billion years. In Canada, there's another outcropping in the Canadian shield. It's out called the Acacia Nice. This is currently one of the winners at about 4.03 billion years. And finally, there's a greenstone belt up in Greenland near Isua, which is about 3.8 billion years. And there have been a recent discovery on Hudson's Bay, which may be about 4.28, 4.3 billion years. Again, this very old portion of the northern Canadian continental cap. But despite this, and I'll show a nice picture of that over here on the right, despite this, we have a tremendous challenge. Remember, this is just to find rock that's been intact with intact minerals to do radioactive dating on. We have to look at a small handful of places on the Earth that have managed to avoid this constant recycling. They tend to be the thickest, oldest parts of the continental plates. The problem is, of finding fossil remnants, we already have the problem that most creatures don't believe behind fossils. They don't actually solidify into rock. They're all soft, so they go away. Only a handful of creatures, a relatively small fraction, tens of percent, actually can undergo fossilization and preservation. Basically, fossilization is turning into rock. Now, it's easy when you've got a creature with a shell, like a calcium carbonite shell, because, in fact, it's already most of the way to rock by then. But with cells and other things, it's a much more difficult proposition. So we're going to have to be looking for either actual fossils, actually you know, stoneified microscopic creatures, or we have to look for the chemical signatures, primarily the isotopic signatures, of biological processes, things that can only occur through biological metabolism. At least so we hope. So it's very, very challenging to push this record back too far because you're dealing with rarer and rarer types of rock. Here's a nice map that shows an illustration of this problem. This is unfortunately a fairly provincial map. I can't find it for the United States. Not, not one as nice for Canada. This shows the entire continental United States and then shows in gray most of the landmass of the U.S., and then color-coded in sort of light yellow up to deep red is rock that has been reliably age-dated through zirconium and other radioactive dating methods to belong to emergences to the surface of the upper Proterozoic period to the lower Archaean period. And you can see that except for a few places out in Canada, I'm sorry, Canada, out in the Rockies, a few places up near the Canadian border of Michigan and, and Minnesota, there is very, very little old rock left in the continental United States. Now, if we'd actually had this map extend up into Canada, we would find, in fact, there's a great deal of old Canadian rock up in here, heading up towards Hudson Bay, towards Greenland and Baffin Island, and another outcropping out here over towards the western coast. The nearest oldest rock to Ohio, basically, are a couple of, of deposits up here in upper Michigan, and, of course, all along here along the Appalachians in a section up into the Adirondacks that gets out into the upper Proterozoic. So it's a very small range of places where you can even look for old enough rock, and then you try to find fossils inside that older rock, and it kind of outlines the challenge. 
Here's a section of what some of that rock looks like. This is what's called the Canadian Shield. This is the oldest portion of the crust in the North American continent. This is an aerial shot. These grooves here are primarily laid down through the last many cycles of glaciation. But what you're looking at are really part of the bones of the Earth. This is rock which is getting back out to about 4 billion years old. This is some of the oldest remaining rock in the world. This beautiful section called the Archaean Shield of Canada. So here's our central challenge. We're dealing with rare items in rare rocks. So what are we going to look for? Well, there's a couple of interesting clues as to what we might go looking for. In the modern day, there's a very rare, relatively rare group of creatures called stromatolites. Stromatolites are basically called from that name layered rock, although in fact, these are living versions of the, of the fossil version. These are layered rock which are formed in very shallow water from sediments that get trapped by microbe mats. These are mats of microscopic bacteria, primarily cyanobacteria, that grow by basically eating methane through the process of photosynthesis. These are often found in very shallow marine lagoons, like out here in Shark Bay, out in Western Australia, or in hypersaline lakes. For example, this is Lake Thetis, also in Western Australia. And you can see these kind of rounded piles that look like piles of junk. If you actually look inside of them, what you find is there are multiple layers of microbes. These microbes, especially the cyanobacteria, kind of uh, excrete a kind of a mucus-like material. Uh, some of these particular bacteria, when they're found in caves, make kind of a slimy stuff that are often referred to by cavers as snotties. It's basically about their consistency. This mucus basically is able to trap any sediments that happen to be washing past them and capture them into layers. As the creatures begin to get sedimented up, they migrate up to the surface so they can get access to sunlight for photosynthesis. A couple layers down are micro, uh, microbes that like being in the darkness, and so they form building layers on top of layers over time as the, as the colony of bacteria grow. And so you get these multi-layered appearances, and we see these in various places. Again, Australia is one particular place for it. There's a couple places down in Brazil and Turkey and other places where you can see these um, stromatolites growing. So we know these things are very, very primitive, but they're large colonies, and they make a very distinct, they have a very distinctive shape and structure. We can find these similar layered structures in the fossil record. Going back about, even now today, they're fairly rare. Again, shallow marine lagoons, hypersaline lengths, places like that. Fairly rare on Earth today. If I was to go back 2.4 billion years ago, back to sort of the late part of the Archean Eon, these things are very abundant. In fact, they're pretty much the primary form of life on the Earth during the late Archean. So here's a number of examples of these. These actually come from older terrain, uh, Archean terrain up in Michigan. They form these sort of layered beds here. You can see the different layerings, just like layer upon layer, that have been laid down as stromatolites build up. The sediments remain behind after the microbes have long since died away. And of course, over the course of geologic time, they turn into basically sedimented materials. But what's interesting is in the bands between these, you see the dead microbial material with its load of complex organically metabolized contents. And so we can actually take these things apart and actually see the remnants of the creatures inside of them. In fact, going back into the late Archean about 2.8 billion years ago, stromatolites analyzed from this period that are fossilized have yielded fossilized microbes. So we can actually see the microbes that were responsible for building the stromatolite mats. And we can see that they're very similar, at least in the basic operation to building the mats as a modern stromatolite, but they're not, I should emphasize, the same creatures as modern stromatolites. Of course, they've been through a process of fossilization. 
None of the DNA or RNA, are, if, if they had them, are, are extant. All we can see is the very clear evidence of complex biologically processed organics. Processes that we only know can go on in nature inside living materials. It can't go on inorganically or abiotically, to use the phrase. And often these things are very beautiful. In fact, some stromatolites, if you cut them through, they're ter- thoroughly turned into rock now, and polished are actually used as a kind of a decorative, like almost like a gemstone material. This is a very beautiful piece up here from this uh, formation up in Michigan. So we see these things all over the place. In fact, Archaean uh, strata from this period, stromatolites are the most common sort of biological-looking formation inside of them. But the question is, how far back can you begin to see stromatolites? The oldest claim for the oldest stromatolite-looking formation goes back approximately 3.5 billion years. So the previous ones I showed you were right getting into the last few hundred million years of the end of the Archaean, just before the beginning of the Proterozoic. But in fact, we've begun, people of geologists have begun to find these layered structures that look an awful lot like stromatolites going all the way back to the early Archaean period, all the way back to about three and a half billion years old. Now the challenge, the particular challenge in studying these older stromatolites is that three and a half billion year old rock has been subject to a lot of geological processing. Now when we think about geologic processing from the point of view of the age of rocks, we always think in terms of melting because that's what resets the radioactive clocks. But in fact, as we saw before in, in previously talking about the types of rock, there are other kinds of rock processing that can occur that don't melt the rock, but in fact keep the rock intact. And that is particularly the, the processing to make what's called metamorphic rock. The rock gets buried deep in the earth and is subjected to very high pressures and very high temperatures, but not hot enough to molten,ize it, melt it. And so it deforms the rock and can begin to chemically alter it. What's particularly going to happen is this rock gets pressed and folded and heated up as you will completely destroy the microbes and you will destroy and break down the organic compounds that they would have made by bi- biological metabolism. So you are starting to essentially begin to the process of erasing the traces of the biological precedent, precedence that went into forming these layered structures. Now this is a particular piece of stromatolite that's been very controversial for a long time. Your book talks about some of the older stromatolite formations that are found back about three and a half billion years, but that there's controversy surrounding whether they are biological or non-biological formations in order. That they just look like stromatolites, but they're not. And how do you prove it? Well, it turns out in August of this year, a team at, at Caltech, my, my old undergraduate alma mater, in fact, came up with a very interesting uh, series of analyses of one particular set of stromatolites from Strelly Pool, which is part of an old three and a half billion year old formation out in that older section of Western Australia. They found a beautifully preserved series of these stromatolite bands, but found carbon deep inside the layers. And through a series of analysis techniques, were able to show that that carbon, in fact, was consistent with biologically processed material. That here was a place where even despite the heating of the rock and high pressure that this rock has been subjected to, they still could find what looks like very, very convincing evidence that this, in fact, was laid down by stromatolite mats. So they can find the carbon and they can look at the details of the shaping of this and say that this is really what you would expect for a biological process, for the formation of these mats through this sort of slime collection of sediments. So this is a very interesting result because, in fact, it pushes the first appearance of stromatolites back 
almost all the way to the beginning of the Archean. This was a very big challenge for a long time, and it's finally really seen its breakthrough moment. And so these kinds of analyses are made possible by microscopic techniques and much more advanced isotopic, what are called Raman spectroscopy techniques, that are really allowing these kinds of analyses to proceed on very small amounts of data. And you can see how really tiny these things are. This is five centimeters here. So these are very, very, very old material, very heavily processed. So that's the, the story with stromatolites. We're pretty sure now, I think the evidence is starting to accrue over the last few years, that we really do see evidence of stromatolite fossils, mats of sediments laid down by microscopic creatures of some kind. We don't know what the creatures are. The creatures themselves have not been preserved. What we see is the aftermath of those creatures' presence. We see the presence of biological activity upon the material that led to the fossil stromatolite. What about actually seeing the creatures themselves? What if we actually wanted to get into the, to the geologic record and actually find a fossil microbe? Well, that's even harder than dealing with the, with the stromatolites. This is extremely challenging. Again, first and foremost, because the oldest rocks are the rarest rocks on Earth. And second is because those old rocks, even if they haven't been melted, have been subject to heat and pressure. And that heat and pressure will destroy the fairly fragile fossil material inside of them, especially when it's microscopic in origin. When you start getting into macroscopic fossils, bones, it turns out to be a lot easier to preserve them. Not 100%, but a lot easier. So the consequence is you expect that only a few of these cellular remnants are going to manage to survive sort of 2.5 billion or 3.5 billion years of geological abuse. But we do, in fact, find them. We still do find them. It's a very careful and very exacting series of processes where you take a mineral apart and you start making thin slices through it. And you begin to see, locked in the shape of the mineral as the stuff basically sat there and sedimented and formed in a rock, you can see the outlines and remnants of cellular structures. And as you get closer and closer in time where they've been subjected to less and less heating, you can start to see the very clear chemical <laughs> signatures of organic, complex organic compounds. Nature can make lots of carbon compounds, but it can only make carbon compounds with a handful of carbon atoms. Above a certain size, you need to have enzymatic processes that can only occur inside cells to build up those complex organics. They're fragile. They're hard to make. Once you make them, you're in good shape, but it's getting above that energy barrier that's important. That's what the whole process of enzymatic proteins in cells is all about, is getting over that energy barrier to let cells make the heavy compounds they need. So here's an example of one of these microcellular th creatures that are found in here. These are microfossils from one of, the, one of the church strata. The very best examples of microfossils, the ones you find in textbook after textbook, surprisingly though not your own, um, come from a two-year, two-billion-year-old formation in the northern edge of Lake Superior called the Gunflint Formation. This is an area where the rock is formed into a, into a formation uh, mineralogically known as chert. Chert is one of the primary components for making, uh, well, among other things, gun flints for old flintlock rifles, as well as for making arrowheads. So these were very well-known places where both the natives and then, of course, the incoming European populations went into up on northern Lake Superior. And the, min the major uh, deposits of these are up in the Canadian portion of the, of the northern Lake Superior. These things have been age dated with fairly, fairly good accuracy with radioactive methods between 1.9 and 2.3 billion years ago. So that puts this into the early Proterozoic rather than the late Archean. But what we find preserved inside the Gunflint chert is a very, very wide diversity of microscopic forms. We can see these things are all have the basic shapes that you find today in prokaryotic cells. You see the remnants of the outer lipid cell membrane. You see there's basically a large cavity on the inside. 
In many cases, you see segmentation, as you have with some of these creatures, like blue-green algae. In fact, they bear a lot of resemblance to the types of microscopic organisms that we see today. They're not the same, and there's been no preservation of DNA or other genetic material, but you can see the basic outlines of these things. They both are in the sizes and shapes that we see in similar creatures today. So these are very, very distinctive, and I would say pretty much incontrovertible evidence of microscopic cellular fossils coming from the early Proterozoic, starting to scratch into the late parts of the Archean period. Well, the successes in places like the Gunflint Chert has led to an explosion of people beginning to seek similar microfossils going into later and later forms of rock and try to push it as far back as you can into the Archean. In fact, some of these fossils what are very surprising is how much they actually resemble modern-day bacteria and archaea in their detailed shapes. So here's a nice juxtaposition here I put together from some pictures I gathered up off the Internet. On the left is shown one of these microfossils, sort of a little multi-segmented thing here from the Gunflint chert up in, up in Canada. And on the right is a microscopic picture of what are called cyanobacteria. It's expected in the conditions of the early Earth. Remember, the early Earth's atmosphere was without oxygen completely. We refer to that technically as an anoxic atmosphere. It's mostly carbon dioxide, a little bit of nitrogen and stuff like that running around. So the Earth had not yet begun to fully develop into the oxygen-nitrogen rich atmosphere we saw today. That development did not begin until well into the Proterozoic period. The primary driver of that oxygen revolution in the Earth's atmosphere was the rise, of, the rise of life capable of photosynthesis, of conversion of carbon dioxide and water in the atmosphere into oxygen and sugars. And once you began to get that rise in oxygen, these anoxic creatures, which were just fat and happy all over the planet, would begin to die out. Oxygen is poisonous to these anaerobic, anaerobic bacteria. So when we get into the present day, cyanobacteria are pretty rare. They're photosynthetic. You can see sort of the green color to them here. And they do, in fact, consume oxygen. And other, eventually, these guys actually are able to consume oxygen. Nowadays, they consume carbon dioxide and water. And they will produce a little bit of oxygen or other compounds, basically, to get themselves going. So we can see very similar functions. The breakdown into sort of these multi-segmented cells here, or colonies. These are individual cyanobacteria of cells that form themselves into long chains. These are the bases of basically microscopic colonies. We see these things on the Earth today in deep caves, out in certain lakes and areas where you get these blue-green algae blooms. It used to be called blue-green algae, but they're now recognized to be bacteria rather than algae, which are eukaryotes. <coughs> and then, of course, we see the similar segmentation here in this beautifully preserved fossil from the Gunflint chert. But as we go back further and further, the interpretation of these microfossils becomes more and more contentious. Because really what we're dealing with is shape and form and size. We don't know that they had what kind of cellular function they had in any kind of detail. And it's getting harder and harder, especially as you get to the older and older formations of microfossils, to actually get that final piece of evidence that you need to say, aha, this is the oldest microfossil in the world to win that contest is you have to establish proof of biological origin for these structures, that you actually are seeing the remnants of biological metabolic processes. That's the big challenge. It's not the argument over whether they exist, it's whether the ones you found really are of, of incontrovertibly biological origin. So here is one of these very controversial findings. This is among the oldest microfossils that have ever been found. They're found in uh, a chert, again, but they're found in, in a 
in a, a formation called the Apex Chert, which is again out in Western Australia. Western Australia and the Northern Shields of Canada are the two places on Earth where most of this work goes on. These things have been dated by the surrounding material with relative, at, relative precision at 3.5 billion years old. This would place them not just up in the beginning of the Proterozoic, end of the Archean, like the Gunflint chart, but actually, if this date is right, pushes almost all the way back to the beginning of the Archean period. Now, these are the various fossils. These are collected by uh, Professor Schopf at the U University of California, Los Angeles, found within these slices made out of the apex chart, and showing the various forms that appear within here. Your book has one of these pictures in it as, as one of them, but these are much better pictures off of uh, Dr. Schopf's webpage. These are found in two different formations out here in Western Australia. You can see some of these start showing, these upper two or three, four here, start showing some of the segmented appearance we see in modern cyanobacteria, little chains, sort of little microcolonies of bacteria. These things down here are basically long and thin, and it's really hard to tell exactly what's going on here. And this is the fundamental basis of the controversy that surrounds these. No one doubts that these things exist. No one has any real doubt that they, in fact, are contemporaneous with the surrounding rock. What they argue about is whether they are, in fact, the remnants of life or whether they're the remnants of some other chemical process that has left its traces behind, has left carbon behind in the sediment. It's very, very difficult to establish in these because the shapes look right, but you can't tell entirely from shape alone. We don't have a lot of the other information because at three and a half billion years old, this stuff has been really heavily destroyed by intense heating. So the arguments go on primarily on what are called morphological grounds, and a tremendous amount of current research is bent on how do we begin to actually establish a biological origin this early. So for stromatolites, I'd say that, that the situation up to a few years ago was kind of dicey. You can kind of get to the middle of the Archean, but you couldn't get back very far. And it's only been in the last year or so that the evidence for the stromatolites going all the way back to about three and a half, three point four billion years ago is now actually on a there are always going to be those who argue, but it seems to be on much firmer empirical grounds than before. For microfossils, it's fairly incontrovertible in many examples that we can find microfossils getting back into at least the beginning of the Proterozoic <coughs> and the end of the Archean. But pressing much further into the Archean eon has been very challenging and is still an area of tremendously active research. This stuff is really, really hard to do. And so I expect that over the next few years, because this has attracted so much attention, this is just from 2006, that we're going to see more and more results come out. So, so keep your eyes open in news reports, you know, National Geographic, places, Science Magazine, places like that, to for, for, the new, for the new results coming out. Because it's pretty clearly people have become galvanized now by these discoveries to begin to dig deeper. And, and that's a lot of the way in which science really works, is, is sometimes... Sometimes you're just wrong. Sometimes you're right but for the wrong reasons. But it really sometimes takes a couple of really good demonstrations to get people's attention and say, you know, it's really worth spending a lot of time and resources to concentrate on a particular problem. Data have always been there sometimes, but sometimes the problem's time has come. And one of the things that's really changed in the last decade or so has been the technology that lets us do the detailed chemical and isotopic analysis that, that was very, very hard to do before. Largely because you had to have super clean laboratories in, super, in very particular places. They were, um, what's the best way to, they were truly beyond black belt techniques. 
But changes in technology have actually begun to increase the point that more and more places can begin to access these kinds of techniques. And so more people can bring them to bear, not just one guy in his lab at UCLA or Caltech or someplace like that. And that's one of the big changes that's occurring. Also, convincing someone it's a real problem and that they're willing to, to work on it. And that's, you know, that's the human aspect of science, right? We work on the problems that interest us, but we also have to interest, say, our colleagues in reading our papers or interest funding agencies in giving us money for the work. So, yes, you do follow the interesting science, but there's a sociological aspect to it as well. It has to become reputable enough to secure funding. The stuff doesn't come free. And so I think that that's starting to change. This idea that, that life could have been pushed back further really broke with conventional thinking. People really thought that, you know, fossil life is hopeless before two billion years ago. And the recent findings of the last decade have shown, no, we were wrong about that. It could be a lot further back. So how far can we really push it? How far can you ultimately begin to push this? And what do you do? Well, again, the, the central challenge is that the further and further you go back in time, the more the rock has been beat up. It's been beat up, pressed, compressed. All kinds of bad things have happened to it. So slowly but surely, you're going to reach the point where the remnants of life are just going to be destroyed. And you have to start moving into other ways of looking for the presence of biological processes. And one of these ways, which we've mentioned a little bit before, but this is our first concrete example, is to look at isotopic analysis of elements that make up these, these, these um, formations and see if, in fact, they come from biological processes. And, of course, since we're dealing with carbon as the primary basis of chemistry for most of the stuff, most of life, not surprisingly, it's going to be analysis of things like carbon or even sulfur or iron, which also figure in the processes of life, that are going to be important for looking at the presence of metabolism, of biological metabolism occurring. And remember, biological metabolism is the conversion of energy with carbon into making more complex carbon organic compounds that the cell uses for a combination of energy and food, for building the structures of the cell. Now, it turns out that carbon, the carbon we think of, graphite, you know, charcoal, the stuff we pick up, is primarily carbon-12. A carbon nucleus consists of six protons surrounded by some number of neutrons. There are three, well, actually, there are four isotopic forms of carbon, of which three are really of useful to us in any abundance. Carbon-12 is the light, stable isotope that's the dominant form of carbon. Carbon-13 has six protons and seven neutrons, is the slightly heavier, stable version of carbon. There's also carbon-14, which is formed by cosmic ray spallation on the upper atmosphere. Carbon-14 is radioactively unstable. It has six protons and eight neutrons. That's one neutron too many for it. The nucleus becomes unstable and turns from carbon-14 to nitrogen-14 with spitting out an extra, uh, see, that would be the case of spitting out a proton, uh, sorry, spitting out a positron. Um, that becomes radio, no, it spits out, it spits out an electron, excuse me, with a half-life of about 5,700 years. Carbon-14 is the basis of carbon dating, but carbon dating is a short-range technique that only works in thousands of year horizons. We want to do billions of years, so carbon-14 dating is totally irrelevant for us. But what we're really concerned with are these stable forms of carbon, carbon-12 and heavy carbon, carbon-13. If we look around the Earth in, in abiological systems or even look in the material of the solar system, or out in the nearby interstellar space and say, what is the cosmic ratio of carbon-13 to carbon-14? And the answer is about 1 in 90. I think your book says 1 in 89, but yeah, it's 1 in 90 plus or minus about 0.1 on top of that. So carbon-12 is the dominant material by about a factor of 90 over carbon-13. But 
And this is, a, I won't go into details of how this works, but basically cell metabolism involves carbon chemistry. For example, taking up carbon dioxide from water or air and converting it into sugars and other stuff. Turns out that light carbon, 12 carbon, is much more readily taken up than carbon-13 by biological processes. It has to do with the fact that there's a different strength of the carbon-oxygen and carbon-hydrogen bonds that occur when you have heavy versus light carbon. And the way the energetics works out, and remember, it's all about energy and electron transfer in chemistry, that carbon-12 is much more easily taken up and converted into those other forms than, say, a CO2 molecule consisting of heavy carbon. So if you took a standard mix of carbon-12 and carbon-13, making up, say, carbon dioxide, in a ratio of 90 parts carbon-12 to one part carbon-13. When you biologically process that, you're going to preferentially take up carbon-12 rather than carbon-13. So when you look inside of biologically processed carbon, you're going to find a deficit of carbon-13 compared to your surroundings, because you preferentially take up the light version over the heavy version. Now, they like to, people who study organismic biology like to refer to this as carbon-13 depletion. And you can measure this to, to surprising accuracy. Remember that our techniques for measuring atoms through processes like mass spectroscopy have gotten to the level where we can literally count single atoms in the highest precision forms of these things. So this is a, a difficult and exacting procedure, but not impossible. You can actually measure these. And the Changes can actually be substantially large. These are not looking for tiny signals. These are actually big effects, and they're really in your face. So what you want to look for if you say, well, here this creature has been fossilized, beaten up, compressed, folded, spindled, mutilated. All of the complex organics have been completely busted up. All those big molecules have been totally broken down into components. Their atoms still remain. You don't break the atoms up. You just break up the bonds that make the big long-chain molecules. So you take and you totally, imagine you just basically take and totally break down a bacterium. Just, just carbonize the hell out of it. The carbon's still there. Then you scoop up that carbon, you dump it into a mass spec, and you count the relative amount of carbon-12 and carbon-13. You'll find more carbon-12 relative to 13 than you would in the environment. So even though you've wiped out the detailed biochemical structure, you've left behind the isotropic traces of this isotopic fractionation that occurs inside the biologic chemistry. Sounds great. Okay, there are also abiotic ways to screw around with the carbon-12 to carbon-13 ratio, so you have to be a little careful in your interpretation. At the raggedy edge, it gets tough. When it's a big difference, it's a big difference, and it's pretty, pretty distinctive. It's when the differences get small, you get dicey. So what do people have done? Well, certainly people have, tried, have applied this carbon-12, carbon-13 isotopic analysis to the remnants of microfossils, and they found incontrovertible deficits of carbon-13 relative to carbon-12 that say, yep, these things have under, even though these things have turned into rock, their carbon basically is, yep, inside that little microcellular structure is definitely biotically processed carbon. Carbon metabolism of some kind has gone on. Game over. We're pretty much confirmed. As you go older and older and older, you start destroying the cell fossils so you can no longer recognize where to look for the carbon, and finally you can actually begin to chemically process and wash through and destroy the, disperse the carbon itself. So what you have to look for are sediments that have been locked down and relatively stable. Find that carbon and analyze the carbon-13 ratio. Talk about your needle in a haystack. This one is really hard, and not surprisingly, the harder it is, the greater the controversy that surrounds it. But there's one claim that's been extant in the literature, and your book mentions this 
only just in passing, but in fact, it's a fairly interesting one. It's, it's one of those stories that I'm preparing for this lecture. I had to be careful not to spend too much time reading the literature because it's really quite interesting. You can see the human side come out. There's definitely people say, but this is our work and it's great. And people say, no, it sucks. Or at least the scientific polite equivalent thereof, although sometimes I gather from some of the reports it's not quite so polite. Because there's a lot at stake here. You're talking about the evidence of the earliest life on Earth. So this is a big prize. So there's some big egos at play in this too. But one of the oldest claims, and the currently the, the most discussed one out in the literature, is a really surprising one, if true. And this goes back to one of these very old rock deposits on the Earth. It's a 3.85 billion year old rock formation on Achillea Island out in western um, Greenland. This is a particular place where a very old section of the Earth's ancient crust has been exposed up on the seashore here. You can see a little bit of seawater up here, and this is this formation here, which appears in the middle of this region, known as a banded iron formation. We're going to meet banded iron formations, or BIFs, later, tomorrow. But today, we'll just simply say that's what sort of called people's attention to it. Banded iron formations are thought to be the signposts of early sedimentary rocks. Really early sedimentary rocks are very, very rare, because when you get back to about 3.8 billion years ago, the sedimentary rock has been either metamorphosed or melted. So there's very little sedimentary rock. So why people are really excited about Achillea formation is because it may be the oldest truly recognizable sedimentary rocks on the planet. And notice the date, 3.85 billion years ago, the end of the epoch of last heavy bombardment, right on the boundary between the Hadean and Archean. So this is really exciting. This is the last sedimentary thing you find pushing back into the, into the geological record. You certainly can date the area to quite high accuracy because there are well-formed zircons inside the igneous rocks there that solidified out in the, in the volcanic processes going on in here. And they date, again, to about 3.85 billion years with a margin of error of a few tens of millions of years. So this date range is really secure. But what they find deep inside the Achille Island bands is they claim that these are old sediments material, the sediment has remained and is the same age as the surrounding igneous rock. That's, that's controversial point number one. And when they do the carbon isotope analysis of those sedimentary areas, they find a carbon-13 to carbon-12 ratio that is evidence of depleted carbon-13. <coughs> so their interpretation is that, in fact, you're seeing carbon-13 to carbon-12 depletion, which is due to biological processes. The counter-argument claims are basically run twofold. I had a little hard time following all the details in this because this is a little bit outside my area, but the basic conclusions, the basic line of evidence I could follow were as follows. The first was that it's really hard to establish that that sediment is the same age as the igneous surroundings, that there are ways to form these things which, in fact, you could get younger sediments in. The other line of argument is that there are abiotic ways of depleting carbon-13 relative to carbon-12 that are not being taken into account by this analysis. And it's not such a screaming signal that everyone says, oh yeah, that's probably got to be biotic. It's actually a fairly, fairly light, lightweight signal. Now again, it depends on who you talk to or whose papers you read. The proponents say, oh yeah, it's clear. The ones who say, no, nah, it's not, have a different ax to grind. So it's a little hard to cut through that. This kind of makes this kind of fun, but this is an area of the basic controversy. If this is right, however, if it turns out that after all the fuss and restudy is done on the Achillea formation, and they really can show that it is highly plausible that the Achillea carbon isotope abundances 
are consistent with biotic processing, this is a surprising number. That pushes life back another 400 million years before any of the oldest possible um, claims for the oldest dromanolites. This would be a very important result if true, but it's still very highly controversial. Again, sort of stay tuned. I think the feeling is starting to tip. I would say if I wanted to take the temperature of the literature as best I can, admittedly going a little quickly, is it starting to, the, the balance of opinion starting to tip away from this being of biological origin. This may be one of those cases where eh, we've walked a little far past the threshold. So what is this, what is going on? One of the things has to do with the fact that this stuff may, be, may have been near a hydrothermal vent. But that's not really a good argument because in fact, extremophiles, which we saw last Friday, these organisms which are evolved to basically adapt themselves into very extreme environments, these may in fact have been the earliest forms of life. So we're finding extremophilic type of, of processes should not be surprising to us. We certainly think that the earliest forms of life are going to be prokaryotes. Prokaryotes are the simplest forms of life found on the planet. They certainly tend to be much more heat tolerant. This is the phylogenetic tree, and the colors here code for heat tolerance. Red are the most heat tolerant through yellow and then green. And most of the thermophilic, the heat-loving organisms, tend to be found north towards the, brand, the roots of archaea and the roots of bacteria, and virtually nothing in the eukarya. So certainly, ancient bacteria are very heat resistant. Deep hydrothermal vents deep in the ocean basins are going to be isolated from the extremely harsh conditions on the Earth's surface, ultraviolet radiation, bombardments, the nasty chemical mix that was called our atmosphere at that time. But these are regions which are going to be, because they're volcanic vents, are very rich in inorganics, in iron and sulfur and hydrogen sulfides. Those inorganic compounds that are very important for chemosynthesis. The synthesis, the tapping of energy by looking at oxidation of inorganic compounds, of iron and sulfur compounds, that provides energy to power cell metabolism, much in the same way that capturing sunlight in photosynthesis, the other form of energy synthesis, captures sunlight to use the energy to power organic synthesis within the cell machinery. So the fact that extremophiles are heat tolerant that we're finding of the earliest life are being found in geologic environments that are consistent with volcanic areas suggests to a lot of people that perhaps the first form of energy powered metabolism on earth would have been chemosynthesis rather than photosynthesis. Now the oldest stromatolites appear to be signs of photosynthesis. They're very similar to photosynthetic creatures on the Earth today. But we don't know that for sure because we don't see the actual evidence of biochemistry of photosynthesis in the oldest stromatolites. It seems possible that things like some of the microfossils, or if it turns out to be okay, things like the carbon placements in the Achillea strata may be signs of chemosynthesis. So the bottom line that comes out of all of this is that life may have arisen and colonized the Earth within a few hundred million years of the end of the epoch of heavy bombardment. We certainly have found stromatolites back that far. There is much more controversial evidence of microfossils and carbon-13, carbon-12 um, deficits that suggest biological processes as far back as the beginning of the Archaean period. We still don't know what the first organisms actually were. We really find them by their traces. We don't know if their photo or chemosynthesis was important, but all of these lines seem to point to one very strong conclusion that many lines of evidence show life arose fairly early and fairly quickly after conditions on the early Earth stabilized. And that has many important implications for understanding life as it may arise in other worlds. Any questions?
Okay, see you all tomorrow then.